0: Well, in our passage for study last week, the Apostle Paul concluded with a reference to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which he had been entrusted. And as we continue this week, we discover that the mention of his being entrusted with the gospel led Paul to rethink all that Christ had done to make it possible. And he began by thanking the Lord for ignoring his past and ends with a doxology of praise to our glorious God. We share in that study this morning. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, ready for verses 12 and the first part of 13. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Paul was thankful for what Christ had done in his life, and indeed Christ had done much. First, Paul says Christ strengthened him. He came into his life and empowered him for service. He gave him what he lacked, to accomplish God's will. He then notes that Christ considered him faithful. He trusted him. He had confidence in him. He was willing to use him and put him into service. He gave him a life-changing job to do. He gave him a meaningful purpose in life. Obviously, this is something to be thankful for. And we can identify with this because we, too, have been strengthened, empowered by Christ, and entrusted with ministries of service in his kingdom. We, too, have been given real purpose in life if we've committed our life to him, if we've come to view everything we do as service to our Lord and come to realize that even the everyday things that we do have eternal significance. So we can identify with Paul's thanksgiving. But we do note something extra special about his being put into service. We note his past. Now, while all of us certainly have things in our past we're not proud of, and we too are thankful that God uses us anyway Paul had special reason to be thankful because of the horrendous nature of his past. He had admittedly been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Before he had become known as Paul the Apostle, he was known as Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish Pharisee who persecuted the church. He began his opposition to the church as a blasphemer. Blasphemies that that weren't directed at God the Father, but at Jesus, who he thought to be an imposter. In doing so, however, he did blaspheme God. He denied that he had sent his Son, and he verbally attacked the only begotten Son of God. He was a blasphemer. And as bad as that was, he didn't stop there. He actually became a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. The first time we see him in Scripture, he appears to be a ringleader of those who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death. The cloaks of those who stoned Stephen were laid at Saul's feet, and the text says he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. This started Saul on an infamous career as the number one persecutor of the church. And that he became a violent aggressor in his persecutions is testified by Luke's statement that Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. His persecutions were so violent that the believers scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and Saul hunted them down in those regions and beyond. In fact, it was while he was on his way to Damascus with papers to arrest the Jewish converts to Christianity that Jesus appeared to Saul in a light from heaven and asked him why he was persecuting him. That encounter marked the turning point in Saul's life. When he asked the risen Christ what he should do, he was told to go into the city, and there he would be told what to do. After three days, Ananias, a Christian living in Damascus, was sent by the Holy Spirit to tell Saul that he had been chosen to be a witness for Christ and to baptize the repentant Saul into Christ to wash away his sins. The marvel of all this never left the apostles' mind. The fact that Christ was willing to take a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor against the church and trust him enough to put him into service as an apostle was hard for him or for anyone to believe. Who wouldn't have thought that Saul's past would have disqualified him for the job. But Christ ignored Saul's past, as bad as it was, and said, in effect, let's start over. I'll forgive you for your past, and I'll equip you for the future. In spite of all that you've done, I'll trust you enough to put you in service as my apostle. The trust that Christ put in Saul was truly amazing. You know, it's one thing to say you forgive someone, but it's something else to trust them from that point on. You know, how often have we said that we have forgiven someone only to add under our breath, regretfully, we'll never be able to trust them again. That wasn't the case with our Lord. When he forgives, he forgets. Once the past was dealt with, he was willing to completely ignore it. He was willing to go on from there as if nothing had ever happened. And for that, Paul was immensely grateful. But why? Why was Christ willing to forgive Paul's past? Why was he willing to show such mercy to Saul after all he had done? Paul goes on to tell us why. And yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found In Christ Jesus. Paul said he was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He hadn't intentionally gone against God in his blasphemies and persecutions. In fact, he always thought he was doing God's will. When standing before the Sanhedrin, He said he had lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God. That's not to say that what he had done was pleasing to God, nor that God wouldn't hold him responsible for what he had done. He was guilty of some horrible sins against God. But he had acted out of ignorance, not out of defiant willful rebellion against God, he could find forgiveness. Forgiveness is always available for such sins. The book of Hebrews and the Old Testament, however, make it clear that there is no forgiveness, no acceptable sacrifice for continual willful sins. The 15th chapter of Numbers makes it clear that anyone who sinned unintentionally under the Old Covenant could bring sacrifices to God and thereby make atonement for their sins. But it also makes clear that those who despise the Word of God and defiantly break the commandments of God would be completely cut off and be forced to bear the guilt of their own sins. Now, some may find this surprising, but forgiveness is not available for those who knowingly and defiantly break the commands of God. Now, it's not our place to judge whether someone's behavior is willfully defiant and outside the realm of forgiveness or simply the result of weakness and misunderstanding, but God knows the heart and will judge accordingly. In Paul's case, he had not defiantly broken God's commandments. He simply misunderstood them His preconceived notions had blinded him to the truth. Obviously, that misunderstanding had grave consequences. It led him to unknowingly blaspheme God to fight against him and to be a violent aggressor against God's people. But all that had been done in good conscience before God. He was just wrong. So when it was made clear to Paul that he was wrong, that he had failed to believe the truth and had in fact believed a lie, he repented and sought forgiveness. And that forgiveness was available through the more than abundant. Paul actually coined a word here, superabundant grace of our Lord. You now, Grace, as you know, is something you don't deserve. And Paul recognized God's treatment of him as grace. He did not deserve to be forgiven, let alone made an uh, an apostle, but God did it anyway. His grace was more than sufficient to forgive Paul. In fact, it went beyond forgiveness, he says, to faith and love. Now, What is actually meant by faith and love in this context, we're not really sure. Some have suggested it's a reference to the fact that God forgave Paul and God's people then showed faith in him and surrounded him with love. And that's possible and is, of course, the way it must be in the church. But it could also have reference to the fact that God showed faith in Paul by trusting him and filled him with an awareness that he was abundantly loved by his heavenly Father. Either way, it's obvious that God doesn't just forgive. He goes on to make sure that the one forgiven knows he's been forgiven and that he is loved and trusted. Even if the one forgiven views himself As the foremost of sinners. Paul continues. It is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Among whom I am foremost of all. Five times in the pastorals. Paul prefaces what he has to say with. It is a trustworthy statement. These are things upon which he wants us to focus our attention. And thus he introduces the statement that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And surely that fact should catch our attention because it is one of the most unique differences between Christianity and all other world religions. All other religions begin with man and his search for God. Christianity begins with God and his search for man. God initiated contact with us. We did not initiate contact with him. And of his own initiative, he came to earth with the expressed purpose of bringing mankind into a saving relationship with himself. Through disobedience, man had cut himself off from God and had been banned from fellowship with his creator. But Jesus Christ came to restore that fellowship and to make it possible for man and God to once again walk together in the cool of the evening. He came to save men from the eternal consequences of their sin by paying the penalty for their sin himself. This Christ came into the world to do. And, Paul adds, he did it for the foremost of sinners when he did it for me. Now, some object to Paul's reference to himself as the foremost or chief of sinners. They accuse him of overstating the facts or of a sense of false humility by calling himself the foremost of sinners, of of fishing for someone to object and say, Oh, Paul, that's not true. But I believe Paul declared himself to be such after a rational look at the facts. He really was the foremost of sinners. His sin hadn't affected only himself or a few others close to him. His sin had affected the entire church of God. His wasn't private blasphemy. It was public blasphemy. Made by a man of considerable power and influence. And it was directed at the heart of the faith of thousands. He didn't merely violate the rights of a few. He went from house to house. Arresting Jewish converts to Christ. He had them imprisoned and tortured for believing the truth, just because he didn't believe it. He murdered in the name of God. He was a violent man, ignorantly bent on destroying the very kingdom of God. Surely that's enough to classify him as the foremost of sinners, and that's Paul's judgment of the facts. No one was a greater sinner than he. And notice he doesn't even view this fact in the past tense. He doesn't say, among whom I was foremost of all, but among whom I am foremost of all. Even though he was forgiven, he still viewed himself as a sinner, the foremost of sinners, albeit a forgiven sinner. And that I think is good. Because it helped to keep Paul from pride. It kept his gratitude aflame, and it served to constantly urge him on to greater effort to, in some way, make up for his past. God had forgotten his past, and Paul knew he was forgiven, but he didn't want to forget it. He never wanted to forget That he was the foremost of sinners, but Christ forgave him, trusted him, and put him in service as an apostle. And that would certainly help him in dealing with other sinners and in holding out the promise that if Christ could save him, he could save them too. And he says that. And yet... For this reason, I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul makes it clear that Christ intentionally chose him, the foremost of sinners, to become an apostle. So he could be used as a demonstration of the fact that Christ is willing to forgive and use anyone. Now, Paul had been well-schooled in Jewish law and history and was religiously well-connected. He was a committed, devoted man with dogged determination. And some have suggested that's why God chose him To be an apostle. Paul, however, said he came to regard his extensive background and personal qualifications as rubbish. He noted that he was sent as an apostle to the Gentiles, not to the Jews, who he felt eminently qualified to reach with the gospel. No, he wasn't chosen because he was the right man for the job. He was chosen to demonstrate the fact that God could take the worst possible choice, the foremost of sinners, and make something good out of him. And we sometimes forget that right after his conversion, Paul did nothing but cause trouble in Damascus, seeking to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And that the believers in Jerusalem sent him back to Tarsus, because his dogged determination got him into nothing but trouble when he was first there. Luke even goes so far as to note that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee enjoyed peace and was built up after Paul had been sent home. In Galatians, we learned that there was an interval of at least 17 years between Paul's conversion And his first missionary journey. So the Lord had a lot of changing to do in Paul's life. Before he was fit for service. But that's the point. Christ is willing to take anyone. Even the foremost of sinners. And he's willing to do whatever is necessary. To make him into someone who can be put into service. This should be very encouraging to all of us. There's not a one of us who Christ cannot use. There's not a one who would believe in him who is beyond the reach of forgiveness. No one who is seeking forgiveness through Christ can ever say, I'm too big a sinner. God can't forgive me for what I've done. Christ has already proven he can. He's already saved the foremost of sinners. And he made him into the great Apostle Paul. There's no limit to what he can do with you. If you'll believe the testimony concerning Christ and yield to his lordship, you too, will be able to declare with the Apostle Paul, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Our glorious God, through his Son, can save even you. Accept the grace that is greater than your sin and let him put you to use in his kingdom. If he could do it with Saul of Tarsus, he can do it with you. If you've not already done so, come, express your faith in the superabundant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ.